Welcome to The 12th Story, a podcast from the Mercantile Library, where readers gather to connect, debate, and discuss. The Literary Center of Cincinnati, The Mercantile, is a 183-year-old working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. The library organizes book discussion groups and writing workshops and welcomes thousands every year to its author talks, lectures, and other civic events. Harriet Beecher Stowe and Herman Melville, Colson Whitehead and Zadie Smith and Chuck D all have spoken at Mercantile events. Located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati, we always welcome new members and guests. You belong here. I'm Hilary Copsey, book advisor at the Mercantile. We're talking today about the work of Pulitzer Prize winning playwright August Wilson. He's best known for the Pittsburgh Cycle, a series of 10 plays, each set in a different decade that depict the African American experience through the 20th century. Cincinnati has a chance to see two productions of two of the plays in the Pittsburgh Cycle this year. Fences, the Pulitzer Prize winning play, recently produces a movie starring Denzel Washington, is playing at Cincinnati Shakespeare Company through February 16th, and Two Trains Running, set during the Civil Rights era, opens March 2nd at Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. Today, we have Timothy Douglas, director of Two Trains Running, here to talk about August Wilson and his work. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Hillary. How are you this morning? I'm well. It's a bit brisk, but I'm good. <laughs> Keeps me awake. So this is not your first time here in Cincinnati. And it's not your first time directing August Wilson in Cincinnati. Um, how do you find the city this time around? <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't been in a little over a year, and I'm amazed at how much uh, development and construction is going on around town, which is happening in every city across the country. Um, but, you know, it's amazing that a little over a year can go by, and I, I notice the difference. So um, I've only been in town a couple of days this round, so I haven't had that much time to really go back to the old haunts, my favorites like, um, you know, Eagle for fried chicken, and, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, Grater's for for uh, the black raspberry ice cream. Uh, but we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> the development, it's funny you, you noticed that because that was something when I was reading in advance of this podcast, I was, I was like, wow, two trains running. That seems really relevant right now here mm -hmm. in Cincinnati. It's about development or what happens to businesses in the face of development, right? Yeah, so, or when development um, is not fully inclusive of all communities, which is what happened uh, to the Hill District in Pittsburgh. Um, Hill District is um, where August Wilson grew up, and uh, nine of the ten plays uh, in the American Century Cycle take place there. And um, in, in an act of urban renewal, I believe it was planned in the 1950s, but implemented in the 1960s, one of the first things that happened was the building of what was known as the Igloo. Igloo, it was a new stadium for the uh, hockey team, the Penguins. But where they placed it, it was right at the what was the mouth of the thoroughfare that brought you from downtown up into the Hill District, and there was a direct route. Well, they placed the igloo right at the foot of that thoroughfare, oh. literally cutting off um, easy access to the Hill District, and a lot of businesses suffered as a result of that, and I can't remember all the details about the, about the subsequent um, plans for that next phase of development, but they realized they had a problem, and in never really figuring it out, the ones who suffered the most were the, the residents of the Hill District, which was a wonderfully, well, utopically, wonderfully vibrant, mixed community of, of immigrants, a big Jewish community, an African-American community, and others, uh, ethnicities living side by side, for the most part, in, in harmony. But the economic strangle that happened as a result of this first big wave of 
what was supposed to be urban renewal for everyone really choked the livelihood of the Hill District. And Two Trains Running uh, looks at that place where let's at least keep acquiring the property in the Hill District. They knew they could get a deal while they were still figuring out what happens next. And within the Hill District, within August Wilson's characters, and specifically the community at Memphis's restaurant um, in Two Trains Running, there's a, there's a, an, a resurgence of um, an organic, innate sense of justice, which doesn't necessarily sit inside of city laws. Yeah. Not that these characters are necessarily breaking the law, but they are definitely... Come, they come to an understanding that they have to work outside of what has been established because it's, their interests are not being looked out for. And within that, one of the aspects of the plays, there is a sense of justice that comes from that uh, following one's heart and one's core beliefs. Certainly those issues are still happening all over the America, yes. certainly in Cincinnati. Yes. I mean, we have... I mean, headlines even in the last couple of days since you've been here about development happening in the West End and mm -hmm. in other communities, you know, is is it part of the community? Is the community on board? Those are still questions that are relevant today. I want to back up a little bit and talk about August Wilson in general. He, you know, he's been called the American Shakespeare. <laughs> what is it about August Wilson? If people, I think my only... Um, exposure to him was in high school at first. I mean, we, we read an excerpt out of uh, probably Fences, to be honest. Um, why, what is it about his work that, that makes him great, that gives him that American Shakespeare reputation? Uh, I bet you'd get a varied answer from as many people as you'd ask that question. For me, what his primary brilliance is, his ability to capture authentically the progression of the rhythms of speech and communication of Africans in America. And so even though there was an invested attempt to, to strip us of all of our African culture when we were brought over as slaves, the, the, the rhythm of the drums would not go away. And, and in the spiritual wisdom of Africans in America found ways to transmute um, the, the, the beat of the drum, which is very much like a heartbeat. And going back to Shakespeare, of course, I am a pictometer, it's a heartbeat as well. Right. But, uh, you know, Africans, American, Africans in America and slaves also just figure out a way to use um, the white Christian Bible and, and religious teachings and transmuting it and marrying it with um, African culture as they remembered it. It's just, you know, it's all held in the body and we are resourceful people. What August did after all of these years of institutionalized slavery and then institutionalized um, um, avoidance of actually coming to a version of truth and reconciliation in this country. All of the complicated things that come of that, including a lot of miscommunication and falsehoods. He somehow harnessed all of it and was able to capture in the language of his plays the authenticity of what we are right now. And even though the American Century Cycle uh, looks at one play for each decade in the 20th century. I have done the play so many times that for me now it's one continuous long opus. story. Yeah. 
And it's the history being talked about, both in the play, but also the audience does the work as well. The audience goes, oh, okay, this play takes place in the 1960s. These few things were going on, and they provide the frame to provide the, um, the context of the time that the play is taking place. But those of us on stage speaking August Wilson's words, it, it really is a continuum that we just drop in, and in this case, in, the, in 1969, um, with two trains running. But going back to try to make my point a little clearer, um, like Shakespeare, a genius. Mm -hmm. and, and geniuses, or at least these kinds of geniuses, I don't imagine they set out creating a map before they create the thing itself. That it just flows this way. From him. From and him. Somehow... He somehow absorbed it all and just found the way to structure the language with mathematical exactness. So for black people specifically, that, that's the most visceral uh, brilliance of his work and it's such a joy to perform and such a joy to interpret. And, and then other audiences who are not African-American, um, because the play and the stories and the man um, sit in a pool of brilliance, it becomes universal. That's the word I hear often most described um, about August Wilson plays, and it's true. But I remind myself, and when I have the opportunity to remind anyone listening, it is specifically and authentically black. Well, he was very specific about that too, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. That it needed to be, it was a black story. It needed to be told by black directors, yeah. black actors, that it was the African-American experience. Yes, and I think the reason that distinction is important is not to um, at all take away um, however anyone can access the work and, and gain satisfaction out of it, but it's also a way, especially for me as a director, uh, it, it's so um, precise and perfect, a precise and perfect window into black life in America n now and what we continue to share at core from the beginning of the 20th century and going all the way back to uh, Aunt Esther's legacy from Gem of the Ocean. Mm. I'm sure we'll talk more about Aunt <laughs> Esther at some point. But that she's the keeper of the memory. She's the keeper of the traditions of all those thoughts and, and losses in the Middle Passage of... Um, uh, the the slave trade. I'm, I'm going to wrap up, and then you, I know you have a specific question. I'm going to go back to my original point. That it's important that I remember it's specifically black because it's one of the rare opportunities as American theater artists that we get to tell our story, and it's an opportunity for any audience to fully root themselves and get. A, a genuine insight into our life and our culture. So that's why I'm a little cautious when the universal word shows up. Yes, that's true, and I, and I don't take anything from that, but I want to remind you, this is also an opportunity, if you are interested, to really get inside the psyche and understanding of what our lives are like inside of an America that is still dominantly white. So that's an interesting <clears throat> point. It, it, I've got... I've got our event from last night on the brain uh, when Chuck D spoke. One of the things he said, he was talking about um, uh, as a kid, he went through a program that specifically was teaching young children. Uh, he was 10 at the time about black history it, as like a compensation for the fact that they weren't getting it. This is 1970, right? They weren't getting it anywhere else. I didn't and get he, it in public yeah, school. Yeah, he said, he, he said that um, we grew up knowing everything about the United States of America, and the United States of America knew nothing I about us. I can tell us. you anything about the Magna Carta you want to know. Exactly. But the slave trade, I was on my own, and I didn't really find out until after college. Yeah, and it... it, it, it 
it may, reminded me actually of the research I had done about the August Wilson's work and that it was a very specific story and he wanted it to be very specific to that, that African-American experience here. Yes. Um, one of the, the things that I saw uh, is that both of the, both of the productions here have warnings about language. The N word is used. There's explicit language used and, um, you tell audiences up front, this is going to happen. And that the August Wilson estate has made it so that you cannot change the language of his plays. Why is that so important? Why, why from your, for your, from your perspective as a director of a play, would you, would you, what do you think to change the language in the first place? And, and if not, then why, why would it be so important for August Wilson that this language absolutely never be changed, that the possibility is gone? I, I, I imagine that the most potent of the language is the N-word. Mm. And I can understand, you know, uh, this warnings about that and bristling at that. But beyond that, I really can't think, at least for me, I can't think of what other <laughs> language would be disturbing because I grew up with it. I mean, the rest of it, I completely recognize as I do the use of the N-word, um, which is used consistently throughout all of his plays. Actually, there's one play, I can't remember, that I directed and there really wasn't a lot of the N-word, which was, I only noticed when I went back to another play that had a lot. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, so I don't know. I, I, I am no further along than most people about... Uh, clarifying the debate about the use of the N-word and not the N-word. At the risk of sounding um, uh, contradictory, I, I do feel strongly, at least at this present time, it is not okay for people outside of black culture to use the N-word because of just how complicated it gets really quickly. Um, in the spirit of reclaiming that word to take the heat and the bite and the sting out of it, because uh, it was created as uh, you know a, a punishment, a derogatory, a torture of black people. So in the spirit of reclaiming it and taking that sting out of it and using it for tr trying to transmute it, I'm all about that. But even within black culture, even within the circles that I travel, and when I you know when it's peppering my language, there's a disease about it for me as well, mainly because. We even in black culture, we haven't come to terms with it. We don't have a, a, a standard agreement about its value, its consistent use to abolish, to not to abolish. We don't have it. Um, I think it's as complicated in a parallel way that we haven't come to terms as black and white America in a meaningful way on the level of what South Africa did with truth and reconciliation uh, in the sense of some kind of symbolic, at this point, I believe, formal apology from America to the descendants of slaves on par with the this country and the international apology to Jewish people and what happened with the Holocaust and the never again that as far as I can see uh, Germany remains committed to we have nothing like that mm -hmm. look how long it took for us to get our museum we don't even have uh, uh, museums around the country that, mm -hmm. that that acknowledges the atrocity of slavery so on par <laughs> with us still having to work through that as a nation as a people uh, of, of, of African descent we have that parallel work, and I think we're kind of stuck in both. So I don't have a pat answer, and and yes, I for one stand up and say, yeah, I can use it, 
<laughs> and August can. And so here's why I think it's important to August. And again, he and I never talked about it, but this is what I feel. That, that because it, it has, still has such power, and, and, and even though there's the obvious power between the different races, within that, uh, it's such a trigger. And I think it being a trigger creates a greater need if one desires to understand black culture, to understand how that lives inside of America and what that means for someone who's not black. And where is that invisible, invisible line of where I'm part of the problem and not a part of the solution because I consider myself to be a liberal person. That word, when it suddenly shows up, it tests everyone's commitment and sense of how liberal they actually are, and that includes me. So I don't have a pat answer, but I defend it. And I, have a, I just have an innate understanding about why it's important that we protect all of his language in the order that it's spoken. And I might have something to say when America gets a little further along. Yeah, it feels to me like a reminder that words matter. For sure. All words. For sure. Um, and that writers, playwrights, novelists, whatever, that they're using words for a purpose and an intention. And I'm curious, um, I think theater is interesting because there's the playwright that has his intention and purpose, but then you as the director come in and you're interpreting that. So when when you, you produce several, um, a lot of August Wilson plays at this point, I mean, is it different every time, or how do you how do you work that that um, balance between his intentions, your intentions, the actors you're working with, all of those things? How, how does that relationship work out? Um, going back to the uh, Shakespeare Wilson comparison and w what comprises their genius, one of the things that I intuit about both of them is. For most good writers, for most great writers, they can access a depth of language and construction of ideas based on their lives, their education, their personal experiences, and, you know, that makes for great storytelling. With the Shakespeare and Wilsons of the world, they, there was never a bottom to their experience. Somehow they were channeling, I'll call ancient brain, you know, and ancient brain... Um, the theory proposes that encoded within us is, is every experience emotionally, psychically that a human can experience before this moment in time, it's already encoded within us. And that when we learn something, it's not that we're taking something in, but actually the veil that covered that bit of knowledge that didn't allow us to see it is removed. And I believe that that's, he's writing from a much bigger source. You know, it's like, you know, I think there may be great writers who write from a, 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 a really good glass of water that's very <laughs> gratifying and quenching. Shakespeare and Wilson write from the ocean. So because that is so compelling, I learned a long time ago, and this was true for me as an actor, is that I could limit my sourcing to my experience in life that has gone before this moment in time, or I could find a way to surrender to, to the, the greater brilliance that I could not control, then by extension, I become a channeler. Uh, and of course, only a portion of what you know August was capable of. So, so it's in once I remember and I'm successful in in turning myself over to whatever stimulus comes through, that dictates 
how I see the play. And yes, it's always different because it's bringing much more stimulus with it. Sometimes it's just a feeling and the feeling helps me unlock deeper meanings in, in his plays. This is my second two trains. The first time I directed it under the Obama administration, what an experience it's like to direct August Wilson uh, with the impact of having our first black president. And, I, and it just made me see and hear, especially the hopes that characters speak. They had a very different ring to it and the entire journey was much more uh, progressive and positive without manipulating the play at all. It just showed up that way. And now uh, the world surrounding this production for me is not so positive and is very confounding and I actually don't understand most of what's happening around me. Well, August is providing me great comfort because I understand him and I understand what he's trying to say. And interestingly enough for me, in spite of how much complaining I do, my innate <laughs> sense of hope that was built up the last time the last I directed production. Two Trains mm -hmm. has not diminished in any way. That's if interesting. If anything, it's actually grown. And my task, and it's a prickly one, is to make sure that I'm still honoring the issues of the play. And so it's the investigation for myself and for the actors, it, it's really much more itchy. But that just provides m more spice and more color. And again, without diminishing August's intention, at least that's my hope, and it feels that way. I have no idea if I've answered your question. You did, <laughs> and you went down to some interesting. I, I, the the difference in feeling is something that struck me there. The and the fact that the hope remains. I'm a Pollyanna at heart, so that yeah. makes me happy. So I want to talk about that ancient brain and Aunt Esther. I made the connection there. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that's interesting with the Pittsburgh cycle is there's some. It's all in the same area, more or less. There's connections throughout. Aunt Esther pops up. T can you tell people <laughs> about more about her and, and how she functions throughout his plays? Um, Aunt, Aunt Esther is um, the uh, elder of this community who uh, holds on to the history of uh, our people and specifically our connection to spirit, to earth, and to the gods. And as she says about herself in Gem of the Ocean, which is the only place she appears in, which is the first play in the cycle, though she's talked about in, I can never remember the number, it's at least four, maybe five of the other plays. And as a matter of fact, in King Hedley II, near the beginning of the play, it's announced that she's died. Um, now, in Gem of the Ocean, the first play in the cycle takes place in 1904, on Aunt Esther is 285 years old. And, and uh, you know, I almost hate to spoil anyone like myself for many years who believed that that was possible. I just accepted that, that this human could live that long. that long. And I still do. But one of the things I understand that's relevant about Aunt Esther in terms of that number is in 1904, if you subtract 285, 1620 is the first known record we have of the first African lifted from uh, the continent and brought over in, for the intention of enslaving them, us. And Aunt Esther carries not only the traditions from Africa, that is her responsibility, but also embodies the memory and the psychic pain and, and transmutation of all the souls and bodies that didn't make it through the Middle Passages. Those who 
chose to end their lives if they had the choice. Those who died or were too sick that the slave traders just threw overboard. Mm-hmm. And, and she carries those memories. It's impo- and the reason it's important in the cycle, and I think for all of us as descendants of slaves, is that right away the, 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 the most um, investment or divestment of us was to cut us off from our culture and our history. And so Aunt Esther, as a presence in Wilson's plays, carries it. And there is a journey offered to several of the, especially, no, it's always the male characters in the August Wilson cycle are offered, why don't you go up and see Aunt Esther and have your soul washed? And the reason that that is an essential passage is because in this soul washing, it's symbolic, in the soul washing, it seems, it seems antithetical to want to, or counterintuitive, to want to reconnect with the pain of having been captured, chained, died, and thrown overboard into the middle, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. But that psychic experience, it is essential that we never forget, and for some of us, to connect for the first time. That is the only true context of the spiritual nature upon which we can adjudicate and move through our lives in a country that still resents us for being here, even though we didn't have anything to do with how we got here. That's a lot. And again, it mostly lives in the psychic and creative world, which is why the theater is such a perfect place to introduce this idea. And the healing for me personally, I just directed Gem of the Ocean again for the fifth time. Wow. And in Gem of the Ocean, there is this symbolic journey. It's called, uh, we go to the city of bones. And it is literally, in the play, literally the bones of those lost in the Middle Passage, they were repurposed and a city was built underneath the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, the character of Citizen Barlow and Gem of the Ocean, Aunt Esther takes him there. Um, and and I, had, I have to direct it these many times. I'm not done. Because I, you know, I'm supposed to be directing a play and creating a pro, you know, production for audiences. But I keep going back to it because I have to keep going. And I, I, I am still g- g- um, gathering ingredients, tools, history that helps me stay hopeful and, um, and want to get up in the morning and continue with that next day. That's interesting that you're still taking all of those things from it. I'm curious what you think or what you hope audiences will take from, I mean, they're, they don't have, um, your background, they aren't coming to these plays four or five times, they're, they're not getting that history. So when they see that show once, maybe twice, what do you hope that they take away with them? It's, I, it's a great question, Hillary, and I know what you mean. I, no matter what I'm directing, I, I, I don't ever answer that question. I wouldn't presume uh, to influence anyone about how they should receive anything for two reasons. Well, for many reasons, but I'll share two. Um, <laughs> one is, um, it's selfish on my part that I, for me to ask that of someone or to instruct someone, the impact it has on me is I'm kind of saying I'm not trusting the work that's been done or I'm not 
continuing the acknowledgement that the work is never done. The theater is a live, living organism. It can't happen without the audience being there. So whether the audience members realize it or not, they're in the show. They're mm -hmm. absolutely impacting the show. And so I... I I wouldn't want to set up anything. I want everyone to have a pure experience. And so we run the gamut of um, certain audience members going, wow, I didn't realize that this would be so related to me, even though the thing that I'm looking at on the stage looks nothing like my life. The words being spoken, I can't say that I've shared that experience, and yet it's having this impact on me. What I would hope after, is, if that's the case, is that it sparks conversation. And if part of the discovery for an audience member is... Uh, a measurable acknowledgement of how, on surface levels, uh, we appear to be different, but that perhaps, oh, now I'm answering your question, that perhaps <laughs> the experience of the play takes us into that realm of Maya Angelou's wonderful quote about we are absolutely more alike than we are uh -huh. unalike. And, and I believe that too, and I think any, any other thought is an illusion. Mm -hmm. So if the power of the play combined with my production relaxes mm -hmm. that illusion, and, and, and then after, I would, I would request everyone taking a step into a level of discomfort and connect. Go talk to someone who doesn't look like you or who doesn't have the same experience. And just, you know, how are you today? Just start there. And it's amazing what it opens up, particularly if they shared a performance. Mm -hmm. For what it's worth, don't feel bad. Nobody ever wants to answer that question, and yet they <laughs> always do. <laughs> and that goes for any art form, whether it's dance or novelists or whatever. So um, that's why I always ask it. Um, the, the discomfort piece, I think, is interesting because... That was one of the things I was struck by reading about August Wilson. He was a prickly guy, and he didn't always say the things that people wanted him to say, black or white, on either side of his audience. And yet he had real um, draw, and people did find that universality or the, spe um, the specific story. Like, for whatever reason, he, he was... He did have that genius that you're talking about somehow. Well, he, sp he, he spoke the truth with a capital T, both in, through his work and when, you know, when he was speaking in public. Um, and, and that's uncomfortable for a, a lot of the time, f to be on the receiving end of that, to, to, to have someone who, again, he's a channeler of his truth. And I'm not, and I think most of the people I know aren't. We, you know, we're committed to truth, but when confronted with it, it points it whether we are conscious of it or not. In an instant, we can see the distance between where we live in our consciousness and where our potential is, and that we could live at our potential right now. If we can see it and clock it, we can live it, and then we have a choice to make. So if, if I'm set in my ways, I might be offended by August Wilson's truth. But if I, if it, if it, you know, sort of connects, it's like at the end of the first Star Wars and uh, the Death Star, you just, you had to get it precisely <laughs> right in that place and the whole thing blows up. It means the things I hear, I mean, I've directed these plays over and over again and I'm hearing things for the first time and they are literally blowing my mind yeah. like I'd never heard it before. So that is... Uh, that's where I can, or I can hear it. I can recognize that I'm not living to my full potential and I didn't even notice. And let me go to my full potential. It makes me vulnerable, makes me available. 
And it's that itchiness that you're talking about. You, I mean, you were talking about it from a standpoint of you and the actors, but it's the audience too. Sure. If you, if you feel, you know, change can be difficult and admitting that you're not perfect or you're not, you mentioned being liberal and progressive and you might think that, but then something, the N word makes you deeply uncomfortable analyzing that discomfort. That's, that's the place where we grow, right? Yes. That's uh, what I tell my kids. It's easier to tell them that than to act on it sometimes. <laughs> and, Change well, is hard. And, and the only hope we have is by example. And so that's one of the gifts of the work that I do. I get to, you know, really put myself on the line. And I, I'm confronted with, you know, I sit there opening night. And I say, is this what I believe? Is, mm -hmm. is this what I believe to be true? So it's a constant measure for me as well. Yeah. So thinking about that, that person, uh, whether it's an audience or member, or even you, I guess, it, it, although I'm looking to you as the expert, if somebody is in that place of, of okay, I want to start a conversation or I want to learn more or, gosh, I had no idea about that. I want to hear more about urban renewal or something, something that they're taking from this production. Are there resources that you would direct them to, more books that they should read or authors they should seek out or other resources that we're, I'm not thinking of? Um, Exactly that, that, that I, I encourage people, I'm assuming you're, uh, well, I'm talking about people who aren't black, that, that, that desire to know, I would re respectfully request that the first thing is research. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the internet is, you know, what it provides. Google is an so amazing the, thing. The, you know, so things that to start first there, have a solitude experience with this new information and sit with it before, and this is my request, before asking a person of color, come with information come with informed questions and then me specifically I you know to the cows come home the idea that there's a genuine interest yes I'm right there and I'm all about I'm Pollyanna as well all about the greater good and and somehow being a part of however we're going to eventually come together what I often experience is that in the genuine desire to know I become the first point of contact with questions that are probing for the individual but not new for me. And that sometimes, and I, you know, this is a constant sort of visual, is that sometimes me, I get real short right away, or it's noticeable that I have, I kind of sigh. Because, well, there's a level of exhaustion there, That's exactly I it, because I think often the person doesn't realize, and why would they, in their genuine desire to know, that for them it's the first time that day, but for me it's probably 17 or 18 that I've been asked the same question. And I try, I try when I'm strong enough to stay present and honor the intention and have the conversation. And then what also consistently happens is the other person leaves the conversation believing that we bonded and haven't had an even exchange. And actually, I didn't really get anything out of that. I didn't learn anything new. But I wouldn't dream of undermining what was valuable about that conversation. And so I often, I, you know, I let it go. Sometimes I can't. <laughs> and I'm like, go well, read a book. But, but, <laughs> but go read a book. But, that's actually but, my point. <laughs> so, and that's my point too, that, that I, you know, I want to honor that desire to know. But just because of how we've been communicating across the cultures, again, my respectful request would be, go, go, do, do the groundwork first. 
yeah. you know, make an effort. It, like, like when, you know, I go to a foreign country, you know, I try to learn five or six phrases to, you know, just make an effort. And every time I do that, pe- people are just gorgeous that yes. I even make. So it's just on par with that, like not deeper than that. And what a difference that would make to the people of color who yeah. would, would just can't give enough. And there's that understanding that, and maybe not everyone has this understanding, but we aren't getting African-American stories as consistently as we are other stories. Right. Right. It's not. And so being, you have to seek them out. Um, you have to seek them out and we have to compel our, our allies who have positions of power to bring these stories forth. So I'm not just talking about the theater now, you know, in terms of what you just said. Mm-hmm. You know, we back up and just look at the country and look at the underrepresented and and it's just chronic. And that trickles down to how we do theater and it becomes economic uh, at, at some point in terms of specifically in the not-for-profit theater, which is the sector we're working in and um, under which Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park works. The, and that the, the not-for-profits increasingly have to rely on private donations, mm-hmm. right? Now, what's tricky about that is, for me as an artist, you know, mixing uh, art and commerce, it, it is oil and water. I'm sorry, I just don't see it otherwise. And so the more, so let me start again. So let me, <laughs> let me just, one more clarifying thing, that all of us who are moved to go to the theater, everyone wants to see themselves, their lives, the world, things they care about represented. Absolutely everyone. But depending on the the, the evolution or the self-realization of the individual donor who happens to be white and start seeing a lion's share of stories about people of color, they have stopped seeing as much of themselves as they are used to and have been paying for, even though they may not realize that that's what they've been paying for. Right. If, and, and con- consistently, at least with August Wilson plays, depending on the level, level of consciousness of the donor that I'm talking about, it's going to be chafy. Mm-hmm. It's going to be prickly. And if that person doesn't like being challenged in that way in the theater, they're not going to support it. So you have this dilemma, like, yes, I I believe uh, theaters, artistic directors are responsible for representing the world that we actually live in, reflecting that back. But if there's not money to produce whatever work we're putting up, like, where do you, you know, so so that's that commerce and art thing. I don't have an answer, but I think that is one of the uh, compounding issues of why we're not seeing a more accurate reflection on the stages of what's happening right in the, the communities that those theaters are mm-hmm. in. You know, we've been talking about August Wilson this whole time, and um, I, I'm curious if there are black playwrights working now that you are particularly impressed by. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a young man you're going to be hearing a lot real soon. His name is Jeremy O. Harris, and his first major play was just produced at New York Theater Workshop. It's called Slave play. And play is both a noun and a verb. And, you know, being a practitioner of the theater, I I can still always appreciate um, great work. I can appreciate great work put into something that wasn't successful. Like, I can still appreciate it. But I'm rarely really taken like, you know, a a, a more novice audience goer. Not only did this piece grab me by the throat, but I found myself involuntarily shouting yes during it at the end of long, complicated thoughts. And he, he I don't know, this is, this is, um, there is the way he's entered this prism of black life in America and specifically relationships between blacks and whites. And he does it, he, there's a core layer 
of sexuality throughout the play, graphic. And it's through the sexuality that we can hear fully the impact of the truth and the conundrum of the challenges of relations between blacks and whites. I mean, it is the most dangerous play that I have seen in a long time and the most accessible to, to me. I think everyone in that audience felt that way. There were some people who were very uncomfortable, like entire rows of Easter Island statues. But, <laughs> you, but you know, no one looking away. I mean, just breathtaking. Yeah. So that's one. Um, <laughs> there is this crop of um, Nigerian female playwrights who live in America, who are raised in America, but are first generation or second generation who are, who ha are capturing more immediately the challenges of being African in America in modern day. One woman is Mfaniso Udofia. Uh, Denai Guerrera is also one who also starred in Black Panther and yeah. she's also in Walking Dead. Um, uh, her plays are amazing and insightful. Um, and the latest one, Nguze, Owoyani, who also was recently produced, her new play Good Grief was produced at the Vineyard. So this crop, I would venture to say, um, woman gang of uh, West African American <laughs> writers who are really um, <clears throat> providing a wonderful female perspective parallel and creating as important an impact as what August Wilson's writing does. Yeah, I saw in your bio too that you had worked with Jason Reynolds, mm -hmm. uh, work a long way down, and mm -hmm. his books yeah. are just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and across the spectrum, I didn't realize The Long Way Down had been a play. Uh, I well, we, that. we were yeah. the first one. We got to create it. That's the, we, phenomenal. Kennedy, Kennedy Center commissioned the book before it was released. And um, I, uh, dramaturg Martine Key Green, and a solo actor Justin Weeks, we blocked ourselves in a room for a week, and we hammered out a script from the book. And then we had a few weeks off, and then we went into rehearsal, kept developing, and we, what an ex I mean, all around, what an experience uh, that Jason Reynolds has had on me. It was a wonderful success, and it's going to be made into a major motion picture. I'm excited. Not about our that. script, another yeah, version. Yeah, really excited about that. His stories are um, his track series. I've I've gone through with my boys and. They speak to that universal thing, but mm -hmm. also very specific mm -hmm. stories about um, young young children, young black children in America. So, um, two trains running opens <laughs> March second, right? We've uh, gone far afield. Preview starts March second. <laughs> official opening is March seventh. Great. Um, if people want to get more information about that, they can go to cincyplay.com. Tickets are on sale now. Um, thank you so much, Timothy, My for this pleasure. conversation today. I really appreciate it. Um, and thank you all for joining us on The 12th Story. To make sure you catch every episode, subscribe through iTunes or SoundCloud. And your good words are better than any advertisement. If you like what you heard, tell your friends or tweet to us at MercantileLIB. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks again to our guest, Timothy Douglas. Um, the 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about and register for all of our upcoming events. You belong here. Mm -hmm.